Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. What I'd like you to do is get your Bibles out and we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. In the title of today's message is Grace and Mercy in the Midst of the Storm. And the reason it's entitled that is that God is unleashing His judgments on planet Earth during the tribulation. And we're looking into the future on that. And it gets really, really bad. A lot of people are dead by this time. About 1.9 billion people on the planet would be dead by the sealed judgments with the Antichrist on the scene, the one world government, the famines and the world wars that are happening and then cataclysmic events are happening. Earthquakes, plate tectonics are moving around. The sun and the moon have been darkened. So there's a lot of cataclysmic things going on. Mountains have been removed. Islands have been engulfed by oceans and the planet's being pummeled by meteorites. So it can't get any worse than this, you think, but it will get worse, believe it or not. And in the midst of all of this, you'll see God's grace and mercy, even to this extent, even in the tribulation. And kind of tell you where we're at a little bit. If you have your bulletin, I put one of these in again, and I will periodically put this in. If you already have one, great, but this kind of tells you where we're at on things so you can see. On one side, you should see the first half of the Great Tribulation. I put the second half of the Great Tribulation just for your understanding. So you can just keep that. But really what we're focusing on, the first half of the Great Tribulation. As you can see, we're in the sealed judgment portion. So this is the first three and a half years of the tribulation. We haven't got to the trumpets. But what's happened is you can see the conquest of the Antichrist, First World War, world famine, the fourth of the earth destroyed, sword, famine, starvation. You have persecution and martyrdom of saints, general convulsions throughout nature, second blackout has occurred of natural life. And then we're getting ready to look at the seventh seal. So that's where we're at. But notice, if you go to the bottom, what I want you to see is a concurrent theme that's going on. See, on the bottom, it says events during this time period. The governmental system with the ten kings, that's the one world government. Then you have ecclesiastical Babylon, the one world religion. And those are all events concurrently going on the same time the sealed judgments are going on. And then you have the ministry of Elijah. Elijah will be on the ground. We'll talk a little bit about that. The ministry of the two witnesses. We'll talk about that in Revelation 11. But today, the highlight is the 144,000 that concurrently is happening along with the sealed judgments. Just to have some understanding, you have to realize in the book of Revelation, there's themes happening at the same time other things are happening. So you have the angelic conflict, you have, but you have the judgments going on on the planet. But then at the same time, you have the issue of Israel. At the same time, you have the saints, tribulation saints, which are primarily Gentiles. And then you have this issue of evangelism that's happening with the 144,000, which we're going to study today. The topic of the 144,000 sometimes seems to be a mystery, but once you read it and you'll see in context, it's really easy to understand but the topic typically is misunderstood because of a theology called replacement theology. Whenever the church theologians or whatnot decide that the church is the new Israel, they'll mess us up really quick. 
when you, the cults come to your door, you probably have heard this, the Jehovah Witnesses think they're the 144,000. And, you know, other groups, Seventh-day Adventists and other replacement theology churches believe that the church is the 144,000. And it's not. The church is removed at this time. The church, we're not here for this. The church is gone in the rapture. And so we're going to discover who this group is, where they come from, and what they're going to be doing. But the focus and the application today, what we're going to take away from this, is the grace and mercy in the midst of the storm. Because there's a major storm going on in the world. And if we put it on a personal level, many of us in here are going through our own personal storms. We're dealing with a lot of junk. And for some reason, the longer we go, the world keeps getting worse and worse. And things are not really working out that great in life. Reality is very difficult for a lot of people. And the problem is that you can start losing perspective on things and doing a broad brush and saying, man, it's all bad. It's all bad. There's no good, whatever. And you just broad brush the whole reality that's in front of you. And that's dangerous to do spiritually. Because what you want to see is you want to see God's grace and mercy in the midst of all that you're going through. You have to see him. You have to see him at work and what he's doing in your life because you can lose hope if you don't. And we're going to see this today with 144,000. But what I want you to pay attention to is not only see it, but how to see it in your own life and how to find it because a lot of people can't see it. They don't see God working in their life through a lot of the pain that they're going through. So we'll learn through the 144,000. Again, that sets the scene. And so really what we're doing is we're backtracking a little bit because this section of Scripture is a parenthesis. We're moving chronologically, but then John stops and he'll do parentheses and says, this is going on at the same time. And so we have to actually go back, and this stuff happens with 144,000 before the Great Tribulation starts. So you're going to go back probably right after the rapture of the church, whenever that does occur prior to the Tribulation. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But anyway, let's start in in chapter 7 and start with verse 1, and we'll start unpacking these things. It says this, After these things, and the idea is he's just reported the sealed judgments, okay, the first half of the tribulation. And so now he's doing this parenthetical. It's a concurrent narrative. And so he wants you to actually go backwards a little bit. It's kind of like having a flashback. I want you to go back, and I'm going to tell you a story that was happening at the same time is what he's trying to do. And he says this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, this is prior to the tribulation judgments happening, okay? And the prominence of angels all over the book of Revelation is because angels are the administers of the judgments of God during the tribulation. God uses the angels to do this. Now, notice they're at the four corners of the earth. And again, this is, you know, a lot of atheists or intellectuals will say, look, the Bible's saying the earth is flat. That's not what it's saying. In context, what it's saying is that these angels are stationed on the four quadrants of the planet of the directional compass. And so anybody knowing that would say it's not saying the earth is flat. By the way, the idea of the earth, just incidentally, the earth being a sphere came from Isaiah and came from Job. The Jews already knew the globe was a sphere 
and so did the early church. It wasn't until the Middle Ages, until someone got their hands on some wrong information that they said the earth was flat. The biblical writers all knew the earth was a sphere. Isaiah said it, and Job said it. By the way, they both said, Job and Isaiah, that the earth hung in space. It wasn't on something, that it just hung there. And also Job mentions that the universe expands. So you already see scientific reality in the early prophets, and this idea that the Bible taught a flat earth is totally wrong. But incidentally, that's what he's talking about, that these angels are stationed on the four compasses of the earth. So one is on the North Pole, one is on the South Pole, one is located on the East, and one is located on the West, and they're encompassing the four compass points, and every mariner would know this. But what's happening, he says, what, they're, what are they doing? Look at the verse. He says, they're holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Okay, so the fact that these four angels are stationed on the four points of the earth means that they're getting ready to unleash judgment. Wind is typically referred to symbolically as judgment. I'm saying these things are a literal judgment where they're holding back the wind. There's no doubt about that. They're going to stop somehow the weather patterns, and supernaturally they can do that. But also what you have to see is that in every activity that's literal, there's a symbolic message behind it. And that's what you have to understand with the book of Revelation. So they're literally going to hold back the wind, but holding the wind back symbolically means they're going to hold back judgment until something is done. And notice in the passage it says they're going to hold the wind should it not blow on the earth, sea, or on any tree. That's literal because the judgments are going to affect the earth, they're going to affect the trees, and they're going to affect the water and things of that nature. And you'll see that in the trumpet judgments. But what you have to see is you have to see the symbolic nature of the real act. For example, like if you go to the Gospels, when Jesus does miracles, the miracles send a message. He'll do a miracle at a certain place, at a certain time, with a certain person, in a certain way. And what you see is it's a literal miracle, but then it will speak a message. So there's a message in the miracle when you see the Lord's ministry. Well, that's the same thing with the judgments. There's a message in the withholding of the judgments and in the judgments themselves. They're literal judgments, but they have a message in them, if that makes sense. So what's the message here? Well, the winds are going to be stopped, right, literally, and judgment's going to come on the earth, the seas, and the trees because the vegetation is destroyed. Most of the water on planet earth will turn to blood, and the earth will go through major convulsions of plate tectonics and massive changes. Okay, but what's the message? Well, the message in all of this is, again, holding back the wind refers to he's going to hold back judgment for something to happen so that it doesn't affect the earth, sea, and the tree yet. Well, symbolically, the earth represents Israel, the Eretz, the Ha'aretz, the land. And then the sea represents the Gentiles because the Antichrist comes out of the sea, referring from the Gentiles. And then it says the tree, well, that's Psalm 1, the believers. So symbolic in the execution of these judgments are, I don't want you to hurt Israel, the Gentiles, or believers, yet until a certain act has been done. That's 
what we're supposed to get out of that symbolically. He's holding off this judgment of the tribulation before a certain act. Okay, so what's the act? Jump to verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. If you picture John on the island of Patmos, east from him would be Israel. Okay, so he sees an angel coming, which makes sense, from the land of Israel in that area, having the seal of the living God. Perhaps it's Michael. We don't know. Michael's the prince of Israel, so we don't know if it's him or not, but it may be. But he has the seal of the living God. I want you to note that. The seal is something in his hand, like a signet ring that you would push onto wax in the ancient times. That's how they signify something. They would put wax and then seal it with a signet ring. But the seal is of the living God. And I want you to note that phrase, the living God, not the dead God, the living God. It's a reference to what the world is doing at this time and why God is being referred to as the living God. In the Old Testament, when God was referred to the li- as the living God, it was in reference to idols because idols were dead gods. They weren't real. There's nothing behind them. There's no life. The living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yeshua, Yahweh, is the only one true God that can produce life. Idols can't. But it's a very significant passage because it's pointing forward. This is ahead of us, not behind us, which indicates that mankind will return back to idols for the primary way of worshiping their supposed gods in their religious fervor. Because the, the whore of Babylon is going to allow this. Now, a lot of people conjecture what could this possibly be. And most notably, a lot of people, prophecy guys, have said this might be a reference to artificial intelligence. Because there's already churches, believe it or not, churches, I put that in quotes, not churches, real churches. But the churches are functioning with a pastor, supposed pastor, in pastors, what it actually is, who are actually worshiping artificial intelligence. Already doing that. And the new movement with artificial intelligence, as we look at it, is getting worse and worse. And it's very, very dangerous. And we see this in Revelation 13, that an artificial intelligence is possibly going to be used by the Antichrist for his image. This image has the ability to kill people. And John says, it looks alive, but it's really not biological life. He doesn't use the word in Greek of zoe, which would mean real biological life. He uses another phrase which indicates it seems like life, but it's really not. And it's possible that that could be artificial intelligence. As you know, I don't think that's too big of a leap that our generations that are living this time would start worshiping artificial intelligence because artificial intelligence will give them all the answers. Why pray to the living God when you could get your answer through Google or you can get your answer through some type of artificial intelligence that has all the information? Why wait in prayer for God? And, and you're seeing a lot of this movement happen towards artificial intelligence. Your phone is the precursor for that. It's amazing what's happening. I'm not saying not use technology, but technology is setting this whole world up for idols, idol worship. And you'll see this later on in the book of Revelation that the people are worshiping idols. And you think, really? Back to like stone and wood? I don't think it's stone and wood. I think it's artificial intelligence, my best guess. Because the artificial intelligence will do exactly what the idols in the old times allowed people to do. Do anything you want, and I'll give you information. So the fact that it says, I am the living God, I am the real God, 
not the gods that you set up. And he's going to do a particular act. So this angel comes in from the east, from Israel, and he cried with a loud voice, which stresses the urgency of the situation. And he calls to the four angels, to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth. Remember, that's literal earth and spiritually speaking or metaphorically speaking, Israel. And the sea, the real sea, is going to turn things to blood and then the Gentiles, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees. Trees referring to literal trees and then symbolically believers. Till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So the tribulation right now is being held back by these angels getting ready to unleash hell come to earth because God is saying, wait until I seal these servants of God, of mine, their servants. Okay, so what's happening here? Well, this is a reference to the 144,000. We'll unpack that in just a bit. The 144,000 are first communicated to us as the servants of the living God. Why? Because where is the church at? This is a new community that is being formed to do the work that the church is currently supposed to do. And let's backtrack a little bit. We're doing what Israel was supposed to do, but they failed at it. So the Great Commission was then given to the church as Israel sat on the sideline in their timeout. And the church is doing the Great Commission of spreading the word about Yahweh and of salvation. But if the rapture is to happen and the church is removed, there will be a point on planet Earth where there is no believers. Because to be raptured, you have to be a believer. And then if that, just a minute after the rapture, there's no believers on planet Earth. So what God starts doing, even prior to the tribulation, because he, he knows all the timing of everything, is he starts preparing a new community of believers that are going to continue the task of the Great Commission to spread the gospel, but there's a tagline to it. The gospel of the kingdom, which is not the gospel you and I proclaim. We proclaim the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They will proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming. Just like John the Baptist did at the first coming. That will be the tagline that the kingdom is coming right now. And at that point, it will be seven years away from being inaugurated. So it's a little bit different tactic. So nonetheless, God is doing this. At the same time, that he's forming this, we, we have conjecture of how this group gets formed. Now, one of them, conjecture, and it's a valid one, is that you have the return of Elijah. Elijah is promised to come back before the tribulation to do something in Israel that they need desperately. Look on the screen with me. This is uh, Malachi 4, 5 through 6. This is the end of Malachi. This is why the Jews at Passover put an empty chair at every Passover, waiting for the return of Elijah before Messiah comes. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The great and dreadful day of the Lord is the tribulation. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. 
the striking the earth with a curse is a reference to the tribulation period. But what is Elijah's ministry to do? Elijah comes back out of heaven. Yes, that's true. He comes back out of heaven to do one thing, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers in Israel. What's this a reference to? It is a reference that his main ministry is to bring together in harmony the families of the Jews of Israel to solidify their family units back together again. You're like, that that doesn't make sense. Why didn't he come back to share the gospel? Well, I'm sure he will, but his primary objective is to heal up families in Israel. Heal up families? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. The biggest detriment for people coming to faith in Christ is a dysfunctional family unit. You can't get away from that. Statistics bear it out. Look at our prison systems. Our prison systems, and this is not a knock on single parenting, but you've got to understand the reality of what's going on. Our prison systems are filled with people who come from single parents because one parent had abandoned the family unit and you had a mom that's trying to do her best, but it wasn't enough. Our majority of our prisoners are raised by a single mom, no dads, right? You can't get past the stats. Satan has figured it out. If I can destroy the family unit, I can destroy people come to faith in Christ because that sets everything up. If people, the majority of people come to faith before age 12 and come from a broken home, a dysfunctional home, it doesn't produce a conducive environment to come to faith. This is why concurrently, as we see the stats with the millennials, who are coming less and less to Christ, the same time the stats are they're coming from homes that are all messed up. The family unit is so dysfunctional, they could barely survive and make it out of this family unit. It's a high risk for drugs, alcohol, sexual promiscuity, but it's an extremely high risk for coming to faith in Christ when you come from a dysfunctional family. doesn't mean you can't, I'm just saying it is better when there's a mom and dad that are semi-healthy, semi-healthy, functioning normal, for then to have an environment where a kid comes to faith in Christ. Okay, the same problem we're having in America about dysfunctional homes is the same problem that Israel's still having too today. So Elijah's ministry is to fix and try to heal up the family unit. He's going to do a lot of heavy counseling, apparently, to get their family units back together, at least copacetically, so it produces faith in the family. So it's a big deal. Having a functioning family creates health. God knew what he was doing when he created the family unit. But now what's happened? Even in our own culture, the family unit is under attack. You have the government, the state, all saying, oh, you can have two lesbians be the mom and two homosexual men be two dads, and they teach it to kindergartners, and now you have the whole transsexual thing and transgender thing, and Satan is laughing all the way to the bank because he goes, I got them. Once I destroy the family unit, they're not going to come to faith in Christ. They're going to be too dysfunctional. Bingo. 
That's what's happening to our culture. So Elijah's ministry is to do this. At the same time, then he's witnessing to these 144,000, if you want to call it. You also have the work of the Holy Spirit still going on. He's removed his restraints. A lot of people think the Holy Spirit stops working at the removal of the church. He doesn't. He just stops the restraining of evil. But he still works in the hearts and minds of people. So he'll work in the hearts and minds of these individuals. The gospel and the scriptures and the Bibles will still be here for them to use, the internet. And so he chooses this select group to start his evangelism process. And notice that they're sealed by God. They're sealed with God's signet ring, so to speak, of his name. Obviously, his name, we'll see this in a bit, is the Tetragrammaton. It's Yahweh. But but what is the idea behind the sealing? Well, the sealing then means that because they're going to go through an awful period of time, the worst in human history, the sealing is going to protect them from the judgments that's going to come upon the world. It's going to protect them from persecution so they don't die because a lot of believers will die and be martyred. And so it's a seal of protection to make sure they get through this and a seal for service because they have a specific task to do for the next seven years. Notice that the seal is on the forehead. Why is that significant? Again, it's reminiscent of what Ezekiel talked about, uh, marking the believers with a towel, a cross on their foreheads. But the forehead shows ownership in the ancient world, and it's where the, the mind and the thoughts and the will were. And so if you wanted to show ownership, and you put it right there on the forehead. Interesting enough, the Antichrist will mimic this and do it to his followers. But it's the seal of the living God. Well, let me show you in, in Revelation 14 a little bit about this seal. This is now after the tribulation, looking ahead in victory. The 144,000 are with Messiah. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. That's at the end of the tribulation, second coming. And with him, 144,000 having his father's name. The father's name is Yahweh, written on their forehead. So the seal is the name Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, is stamped on their forehead. Now, here's some conjecture. And a lot of people ask this question Is that visible or is it invisible? Well, you have to first ask, who's the seals for? Well, who would need to see it? What do you mean? Well, they're going to go around evangelizing throughout the entire world. Putting a physical mark on them would brand them, and everyone would know what they're up to. There has to be some incognito with what they're doing, because otherwise they'll be taken by the Whore of Babylon or by the Antichrist and killed. So a lot of prophecy guys will say it's, it's an invisible to the naked eye, but to the unseen world, the invisible world, to angels or to demons, it's visible, very visible to them. And that would make sense because the judgment that are coming out are either coming from good angels or fallen angels. And so those angels, good or bad, need to know who they can't touch and who they can. That makes sense. Because right now, by the way, you have the seal of God on you, even in the church age, and you can't visibly see it, right? But I can tell you this, the demonic world can. We've had even people that have been involved in the occult who've come out of the cult, become saved, say, we knew who the believers were. He goes, one guy said, we, we saw their, their, they shined. 
We could see them in the occult world who they were. So in the demonic world, they see it. They know who the real deal is. You saw that in the book of Acts as well. The demons said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but you I don't. Remember that one? And so in the demonic realm, that's where it's important to see the seal of God and who belongs to God. But nonetheless, we move on. Look in verse 4. We'll unpack this a little bit more. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all... I mean, this is real simple, but we have to make sure we understand this. Of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. It's not the church. It's not the Jehovah Witnesses. It's not the Mormons. It's not the Seventh-day Adventists. It's not replacement theology churches. You can't get any more basic than this. It tells you where they're coming from. These are Jews. You can't get past that. And I know we're all on the same team because we believe in a future for Israel, and I get that. But, dude, you go outside of our church to to about 75% of the churches, they'll interpret this as the church or some wacky interpretation and just simply won't take it for what it says. It is a crucial issue when we're dealing with Israel because we see that God has a plan for the nation of Israel, and he's going to start it with 144,000 in grabbing a remnant to start the evangelism process, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the entire world. And we're in the midst of all this today. We see what's happening. And Scripture predicts this. I'm at a loss, guys, why other believers don't see this. And it has to do with some presuppositional theology, perhaps, that comes from Reformed theology and Catholic theology. When Protestants or evangelicals or whatever you want to call them deny the reality of future Israel, they are simply functioning as Catholics. That's Catholic theology that comes straight from Augustine. That's all it is. So we have a bunch of Protestants functioning like Catholics. So what has happened so far, even in our lifetimes, that we can see that was predicted in Scripture? Look at this, what's happened. I have a list here for you. Scripture predicts things about Israel, that Israel will return the land. That happened. After 2,000 years, 1948, May 14th, It happened. How do they not see this? Two, Israel will become a united nation again. It did, and they are. That Israel would be brought forth in one day. Yeah, you know what day it was? May 14th, 1948, one day. That's all it took. Israel's currency would be the shekel. What are they on right now? Shekel. Israel would have a military power, second to the United States. We're doing so far so good. And Israel would be the center of conflict to the whole world. There we go. How do believers not see this? I can tell you it's a refusal to see prophecy happening right in front of their very eyes. They would rather preach a message about 10 ways to be stress-free, 10 ways to have a better smile, 10 ways to have your best Friday, instead of dealing with this topic. You saw the video today. Everything's going on because of Israel back in the land in the Middle East. How are they not seeing this? We're seeing prophecy unfold right in front of our very eyes. If I get this, then the 144,000 is not even a problem for me. I'm like, yeah, that makes total sense. God's going to restart the program. And what is the prelude? 
going to? The, the prelude is 144,000, but what's the 144,000 aiming to? Paul's statement in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved, which means that all Israel that survives the tribulation will accept Jesus as Messiah, and then he will come back to rescue them. That's where this is all going. That's what the 144,000 represent. Okay, what's this term 144,000? Break that out, because that's very Hebraic, very Hebrew. Well, it's Hebrew gematria. You've got to remember, anytime you're dealing with Hebrew, even though we're in the Greek Bible section of, of the Bible, it's still very Jewish. Hebrew language is an alphanumeric system which means that it's not only letters, but the letters are symbolic of pictures, by the way, but also it's their number system as well. By the way, just incidentally, the Hebrew language is the original language. How do we know this? Because in the Old Testament, in Genesis, all the names are in Hebrew. All Adam, all that stuff, Eve, all that is all Hebrew, which means that's what their names were in Hebrew. So the original language was Hebrew until we got to the Tower of Babel, and then God confused the languages. When Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians about the language of angels, he is not talking about speaking in tongues. He's talking about the language they speak in heaven. Do you know what language they speak in heaven? Hebrew. The original language in the garden And throughout Genesis is Hebrew. The language they speak in heaven is Hebrew. So one day when you get there, you will automatically speak Hebrew. It won't be a problem. You won't have to learn it. But that's the language of heaven. So when you see 144,000, you have to think Hebrew. What does 144 mean in Hebrew gematria? Well, simple. 144 is 12 times 12. 12 times 12 symbolizes completeness, but there's a caveat to it. Completeness as far as a perfect government in relation to the nation of Israel. Okay? Twelves are all over the Bible. And each time you see 12, it refers to completeness and government. So in the idea of, of Israel, how did Israel start? With how many tribes? Twelve. Twelve is the number of perfect government. When God forms the church, he started with 12 apostles because they were going to be the foundation or governmental entity of the church, the new entity. So now that you have the 144,000, it's 12 times 12, which symbolizes completeness pointing to the nation of Israel as a governmental entity. And you're like, what's that about? What's the big deal about that? Because... When Messiah comes back and rules and reigns from Jerusalem, guess who he uses for his government? Israel. Israel will be the perfect government. It will be the head of the nations, not the tail. And so this 144,000 is pointing forward, saying that Messiah is going to rule the world through the government of Israel. And he told the disciples, you will rule over the 12 tribes. So part of that governmental entity, I'll tell you how the government looks. It's Jesus, King David, and under King David is the 12 apostles, and under them are rulers and princes that run Israel. That's what this is pointing to. It's pointing to the final government that Messiah rules through, as predicted by the prophets. 
But what about the thousand? What's that? 144, 12 times 12. I get that. But you have a thousand. What's this thousand about? Well, you get your term thousand in the Old Testament, but primarily from Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 20, anytime you see the word thousand or the numeric value of thousand, it is a restraint of evil. How long is the millennium? A thousand years. What's being restrained during the millennium? Satan and all the demonic hosts are being restrained. Evil is being restrained during the thousand-year rule of Christ. What kind of rule does Christ have during the thousand year? The, ah, yeah, the rod of iron. He doesn't allow mischief. He doesn't allow sin to happen in his environment. He holds it down. He prevents it. It's restrained. Does that make sense? So hence, 144,000 is again pointing to eventually that Israeli government that Messiah will rule over that will restrain evil during the millennial reign of Christ. It makes perfect sense for what God's going to do through Israel during that period of time. Okay, that being the case, let's get some more information about them and unpack this a little bit more. We jump to Revelation 14, and this is proof of their ultimate victory. And it says this, and I looked, we'll flush this out when we get there, but I want to just do a preview of it real quick. I looked and beheld a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000. That's proof of ultimate victory. They all made it without dying. That this seal, God is saying that this seal protected them and gave them that grace and mercy to get out of it. Okay. And he goes, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. It's all in celebration. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. That's the church, by the way. And no one could learn that song except 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. What did I say the earth sometimes symbolizes? Israel. He's playing on that term. Yeah, they're redeemed from the earth, but specifically they're redeemed from Israel. That's what started the remnant. Okay. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. What do you mean? Well, they don't get involved in sexual immorality. And this is extremely important for you to understand. They are pure morally. They have not got themselves into any sin sexually. Because anytime you see Israel in the past, Israel always got themselves messed up with idolatry and sexual immorality. Those are the two hallmarks, and they're actually linked together. Anytime they worshiped a foreign god, he immediately went to sexual immorality. He says, but these guys are different. They have not done this. And by the way, he says, for they are virgins. They're not even married. They're like the Apostle Paul who was single at the time of his ministry, and they're singularly focused on the task given to them. They have no time to start a family because who would want to start a family in the tribulation, right, with the Antichrist and all that? It's not a time for that. It's a time to get a job done, and that's what they're going to do. And then he goes, these were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And that term firstfruits is Hebraic. This is a reference to the Hebrew concept of firstfruits, an offering of firstfruits. Paul will pick up on this in Romans 11. I want to show you this real quick. In Romans eleven sixteen, Paul talks about this, and this is, again, a reference to Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So this is important to understand what he's saying. For if the first fruits, the challah, is holy, the lump or the dough is also holy. He's referring to the challah offering, which 
in certain ceremonies, in certain celebrations of Israel, in their feasts, they would actually take a piece of bread, a lump of the dough off, and then offer that back up to Yahweh as the challah. That's what he is saying is what the 144,000, because the challah points to the dough, which if the challah is good, then the whole dough is good, if that makes sense. And what it's pointing to, Paul combining with John, is that the 144,000 are the remnant of Israel or the beginning of the remnant of Israel, and it points to the future Israel being, at least the remnant being saved, and that whole lump being pure as well by the time Messiah comes back. Now, Israel will have to go through a purification process, and two-thirds of Israel will be restrained off and cut off because they're unbelieving. But that one-third that's left is the lump that the 144,000 represent, that the whole lump, all Israel, will be saved eventually. I'll give you a picture of this just because you can understand. This is what they would do. It's not unleavened bread, by the way. The challah You know how we do Lord's Supper and it's unleavened because it represents Christ? The challah is not that because it had leaven in it and had eggs and different things. But what they would do is break a piece off and then give that as a first fruits offering. That's what the 144,000 are. They're the challah. Or another term we'd have, teruma. It's the lifting up, the heave offering to designating something for a higher purpose or lifting a part of a quantity from a larger quantity. That's what the 144 represent, that first fruits of being the heave offering. They're the first offering to God in that sense. And eventually points to all Israel being saved. Okay, let's go back then to verse 5 in chapter 14. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And this is extremely important. I want to do an application here. No deceit found in their mouth. They are without fault. They're not sinless. But they're very mature Jewish men, unmarried, who have no theological issues, who have really no moral issues that would preclude them from serving the Lord in this manner. And because of that, there's no deceit found in the mouth. What this means, and this is the application part, their character and their walk with the Lord matches the reality that they're in. Think about the reality they're in. They're in the tribulation. It's hell come to earth. It's the worst time on human history. Antichrist is there. Horror Babylon, blood, everything going, dead bodies all over the place. But they possess the moral character and the theological character to deal with what they got to deal with. Now, that's saying a lot. How do you apply that then? It's this way. If you're telling yourself, man... I need God to rescue me out of this situation right now that I'm in. I'm experiencing a lot of pain. And Lord, would you please take this away? And guess what he does? He doesn't. And then what? And you're saying, man, I am sinking in this, Lord. I can't deal with this from a day-to-day standpoint. I'm over my head. You're right. You are over your head. I'm over my head. Absolutely. And God wants you to admit it. You are over your head, Brandon, aren't you? You're way in deep water, aren't you? Yes. Would you please rescue me out of the deep water? No. Then what do you want from me? 
I want you to grow into the character that you need in order to deal with the reality that's in front of you. Because if you do not grow, you will not be able to handle the reality in front of you. So what you're telling me, Lord, is you're not going to rescue me because you want me to grow? Yes. Bingo. Wow. I didn't want that one. That's a hard pill to swallow. Because you and I have to grow to fit the reality that we're dealing with. So right now, if you're telling me I'm over my head, what God is saying is you better grow to that level. Otherwise, you will be over your head. That old lie that God never gives you more than you can handle is a a lie. It's actually temptation, not trials. God never gives you more temptation than you can handle, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But he never promised he would give you trials that would be at a limit. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians said, we were having so much trouble, we nearly died. We got in fast over our head, quick. And that's where a lot of people are right now. And if you're there, your character better match the reality to what you're dealing with. That's what they are. Now, let's unplug this a little bit more, and then you start getting very specific. Go back to Revelation chapter 7, and we'll finish this up and and see what it says. Now it gets very specific. If you weren't convinced by the other time that this was from the the first roots of Israel, now it gets real specific. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, it's left a few of them off, and don't get caught up in that. A lot of people may, well, where's Dan at? Well, Dan was the first uh, tribe to go into apostasy. Yeah, but Dan has millennial portions in the kingdom, so you don't want to do that. What's going on is symmetry. There's actually 13 tribes, right? Levi is the only one that doesn't have land portions. So there's actually 13 tribes. What the writers will do in the Bible, and there's like 19 different lists, and they're all jumbled up, is to keep symmetry is they'll always put 12. So that's why you're missing the tribe of Dan out of that. It's just to keep symmetry. That's all. You don't have to look any further than that because a lot of people will go way too deep, and they'll start probing in this and doing eisegesis and say, ah, Tribe of Dan's left out. The Antichrist or the false prophet must be from the tribe of Dan. It's like, no, no, don't go there. No, that's not what the Hebrews are doing. The Hebrews are just doing symmetry. They're very big on symmetry, on numbers, 12, sevens, threes, stuff like that. Okay, loud and clear. When the Jehovah Witness comes to your door... We want to sell the good news of the Watchtower organization. We're the 144,000. This is what I say to them. What tribe are you from, dude? And you know what? They look at you like a calf at a new gate. What? Well, you're, you're picking the 144,000. What tribe are you from? Because it says you're Jewish and you have to be. Oh, and by the way, are you married? Oh, yeah. And you have kids? Yeah. Well, then you don't qualify because it says they're unmarried. And oh, are you virgin? Uh, no. Uh, so you're not Jewish, you're not from a tribe, you're, you're, you're not married, and you're not virgin. Well, you don't qualify, dude. So you're out. And they just look at you like, we didn't come here to argue. They just cop out. They don't want to deal with the text, right? The text is so plain, I don't know how anyone can miss it. 
But you say, well, the records were burnt in 70 AD, Brandon. I've had sophisticated Jehovah Witnesses even say that. That's a little sophisticated. And I said, that's true. The records were burnt by Titus in 70 AD. But we're not dealing with, does the Jew today know their, their genealogy? We're not dealing with that. We're dealing with God knowing who they are. That's the reality. And whether you have visible or invisible, the reality is God sees the invisible. He knows the genetic lines and which people, Jews on the planet, are from certain tribes. He knows that. So the issue is not whether the Jew knows it. It's whether God knows it, and he does because he's omniscient. Okay. And so what's some application? The application then becomes they're going to do a task. They're called to do a task for seven years. And they're singularly focused on doing this task. And what is the task? We'll see next week is to evangelize and they lead countless millions of people to the Lord. Imagine this, guys. Imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls on this planet doing the work of ministry and evangelizing. Paul turned the whole Mediterranean world upside down. That's one guy. Imagine 144,000. Now, next week, I'm going to get into the sophistication of why would God pick these individuals to do it? Because there are reasons behind it. It's not just simply for the first fruits of Israel. Israel has something that if there was no church, that the rest of the world doesn't have. You know what the secret is? It's called the Old Testament. That's something the Buddhists don't have. Confucius don't have more, you know, all these, these people are going to be left behind, taken into the whore of Babylon. The Jews have the Old Testament. And right now, a lot of Jews are coming to faith in Christ, and they're going to leave their works behind for their fellow Jews to get this. We'll talk about that more next week as we talk about the evangelism that happens. But what's the application then? Okay. Well, it's hard to make application because a lot of them just answer the call and go for it. And they don't hold back. They get called to do something, they drop everything, and they go do this for the next seven years. That's a hard one to, to, to follow because we're not used to seeing that. But let's go back and understand the first calling to the church. And do you remember the church's first calling was to the disciples about this whole task of giving out the Great Commission. And it was to Peter, and it was to the disciples, I'll make you fishers of men. Do you remember that? I'll make you fishers of men. Okay. For some reason, the 144,000 has got this, or will get this. But for some reason, the early church didn't, and the disciples struggled with this. To wake the disciples up to their need to be about the call of God, he did something to them one night that freaked them out. And you might remember it. They were on the Sea of Galilee on a boat, and a storm hit, and they were literally getting rocked to and fro on the boat. Remember that? And then at 3 in the morning, as they're fighting the waves all night, they see something walking on the water, out in the water. And they first thought it was a ghost. Mark uses the phrase, that Jesus was going to pass them by. He wasn't just going to deal with them. He was just going to walk right past them. And that whole dilemma, if you remember, that starts the idea of the call of what they needed to do, the call to do their job, the call to do our job. They see him, and they finally realize it's the Lord. 
walking on water at three in the morning in the middle of a storm. Peter's the first one and says, Lord, command me to come out to you. So he says, come on, Peter. So Peter gets out of the boat and then starts walking. You remember that. And then he starts looking at the waves and the wind, and he starts sinking. And Jesus has to come. He says, Lord, help me. And the Lord came and got him, put him back on the boat. What was the whole point of that passage? What was the whole point? It's the point that you and I, if you're going to do something for God before it's too late, before the rapture, you got to get out of the boat. you got to get out of your boat. The idea of them being in a boat in a storm and the storm of life that you're in right now, and they see Jesus walking, passing by, was meant for them to see that. Because what Jesus is doing, the message from that is, Jesus is walking through your life in the most unexpected ways, and he is saying, hello, do you see me? I'm here in your storm. I'm in the midst of your storm. I'm right here walking in it. I'm with you. Do you see me? Do you see Jesus in your storm right now? He's there. And he's saying, I'm trying to get your attention. It's 3 in the morning, and I know you're in your storm. But do you see me? And if you do see me, great. But then I need you to do something. I need you to get out of your boat. What do you mean? See, these guys left everything to do the job they're needed to do for the tribulation. It's just like, wow, man, they're, they're just motor scooting right along, man, no problem. The rest of us are like the disciples sitting in a boat saying, I'm not coming out in the storm. I think there's more security in the boat than with you in the storm, Lord. And he's saying, the safest place, guys, is with me in the storm. Don't hang on to the security in the boat. But we're holding on to the boat for dear life. That's what we're doing. And because of that, we can't answer the call of Jesus on our lives. Because we're too afraid to leave the security of what we think is giving us security. Of what we think is making us afraid. Ask yourself, what is my boat that makes me afraid of stepping out to call, to do what he's called to do? Because guys... These guys have seven years to accomplish their mission. Seven years. I don't know how long we have until the rapture. But you don't know, I don't know, but we don't know how if we can we die or not. You have a limited amount of time to do what God calls you to do. Do not spend your life in the boat. What is your boat? That the boat is your safety and security. The boat is something you trust in. The boat is what's keeping you comfortable. The boat is whatever is pulling you away from discipleship. Ask yourself, if you don't know what, what your boat is, what does your fear tell you? Ask yourself this, what produces the most fear in me, especially when I'm thinking about leaving it behind and stepping out on faith? That will tell you what your boat is. These evangelists, they don't have any problems, man. They're gone. We're going to do it. We're like Peter, and we're like the apostles. Eventually, you're going to have to come out of your boat if you're going to do anything for God, especially with these last days remaining. I'll leave you with this and this quote. It comes from not a Christian source, but it's a, a valuable quote. To step out and do something by faith, whatever God's calling you to do, I don't know what that is. This is what counts. It's not the critic who counts. 
Not the man who points out the strong man who stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man or woman who is actually in the arena, who at best knows in the end the triumph of great achievement, and who at worst, if he falls, at least fails while daring something great. So that is the place will never be those of the cold and timid souls who know neither victory or defeat. The message from the 144,000 is get out of your boat and start doing the call of God. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.